Hey there, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us on today's program. We're going to talk to Samuel Say about the ubiquity of CRT, that is critical race theory. We hope you enjoy the program. Stay tuned for more. Brother Sam, thanks so much for joining us on The Great Exchange yet again. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor, man. Uh, you're a good friend of mine. I love you. So happy to <laughs> chat with you. Yeah, it's been a while. And I mean, so much has happened since the last time we've had you on the program. I think you are now up there as far as um, people who we've interviewed. So I'm excited to talk to you about a really important subject today and one that we've kind of mentioned throughout our um, discussions when we talked about Brett Kavanaugh way back when, when we talked about social justice and the gospel, we did touch on a little bit of, um, you know, critical race theory and, you know, a biblical view of race and justice and all these things. So there is overlap there, but we haven't done a deep dive into what is critical race theory. Um, and I think that's very necessary. And since you've been super busy talking to everybody, writing about this uh, subject nonstop and, you know, really doing a yeoman's work about going to the primary sources and reading them for yourself. I thought I would get some of your insight um, on what critical race theory is, and maybe you could trace a little bit of the origin story. So then that can kind of build a foundation for our discussion today. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. Excellent. Um, So what is critical race theory? I know um, a, a lot of times when we're having these discussions, when people are going back and forth on this subject, it kind of been, it can kind of be a no true, like no true Scotsman fallacy. It, it, our side tries to define critical race theory by going to the authors themselves. And they're like, Oh no, no, no. He wasn't really critical race theorist, whatever, whatever, whatever. So, help us get a little bit of an understanding about what critical race theory is. Yeah. So I'll give a very short um, definition. I'll give a more, a slightly longer uh, definition. So basically critical race theory is the idea that uh, Western society, um, Canada, America, uh, for instance, uh, is built by white supremacists to, um, to privilege white people. And that the entire system, the entire, um, our understanding of values and ethics and the entire culture, every single institution in, in the West is built to, 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 again, give white people privilege and then to oppress uh, non-white people. That is basically what critical race theory is. Now, a longer um, definition is that, and they, they so... Critical race theory is really just Marxism and postmodernism combined. What it really is, is it's borrowing from what Karl Marx said about conflict theory, which is the idea that society and history is made up of the oppressor and the oppressed. Those are his words. And then they borrow the postmodern thinking that Western society is built by the elites. It's built by the, 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 the straight white male to to through discourses and through basically language and words and culture to shape and to uh, to indoctrinate, to manipulate 
people into thinking that what we think is truth, what we think is justice, what we think is real and meaningful and good is really just a, a way for the white straight male to oppress other groups. So what that really means then is Western society, Western values, um, the legal system, America's founding principles, Canada's founding principles, um, the, the, what we understand about impartiality, all these things are an illusion to convince us, would be as in black people or non-white people, the postmodern proletariat, right? The, the proletariat in Marxism is the oppressed, the bourgeoisie is the oppressor. So this idea is that, in, in, uh, is that um, postmodernists believe that, you know, the straight white male has created this a culture in the West to, again, to benefit white people and to oppress black people. Now, critical race theory is combining all of that, but in a very specific sense, which is that white people, again, have built a society, a culture in every way to help black, to help white people but then to harm black people. And that you could see it in every way. So, um, and this is what James Lindsay says. James Lindsay talks about how, you know, for a critical race theorist, it's not a matter of if racism exists, it's how it exists, right? In that in every situation, in every corner of the West or in the world, you can find racism. It's just a matter of being able to identify it. And they identify it by thinking critically um, not in terms of actual critical thinking, but by being critical of everything in the in the West and finding faults in that. So they basically they assume the worst. Sorry, they assume the worst of everything because they assume the worst of the West as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's basically those presuppositions that go into this critical analysis of society, um, and that's. Uh, you know, it's it's less of a theory and more of a, a religious presupposition that uh, these things are true. Therefore, we have to look at everything through this set of lens, through this critical ideology. Um, and it, instead of, like you said, bringing a thoughtful critique, it's critical of the specific, um, you know, Western mores and a lot of the Judeo-Christian principles that our culture was founded upon. So maybe you could talk a little bit, Sam, about the genesis of CRT and some of its proponents, you know, going back to Derek Bell, uh, Richard Stefanczyk, uh, Richard, uh, Richard Delgado, those, those kind of first um, proponents. And then who are in our culture, the progeny of those, first kind of advocates of this kind of critical view of society? That's a great question. So a critical race theory, um, I, I suppose more immediately than postmodernism and Marxism, they come straight out of something called critical legal studies. Oftentimes, and I'll talk about this as I answer your question, but oftentimes proponents of critical race theory um, claim that when we point to non-legal critical race theorists, as in sociological leaders of critical race theory, they say, well, wait a minute. No, critical legal study, sorry, critical race theory is really about, um, you know, American law or Western law. And they're kind of right about that in that initially it was a group of American lawyers 
coming out of a movement called Critical Legal Studies, which basically said that the America's legal system is fundamentally racist. And the only way to, to, to end the racism is to change the entire system, to abolish the entire system. So what you hear about defund the police, for example, is very much within um, the, the traditional uh, beginnings of critical race theory. Anyway, so um, the people that came out of this critical legal studies are people like um, Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, Richard Delgado, Mary Matsuda, um, Alan Freeman, um, Derek Bell, somewhat. He had already kind of left the movement already, but he was part of critical legal studies as well, too. Now, Derek, Derek Bell is really the key leader of, of um, critical race theory, and he um, ended up essentially discipling Kimberly Crenshaw, who, in a sense, has become the, the most influential person, uh, at least in terms of... Um, the original founders. He's now she's now the most influential person. She's the one that created um, the the concept of inter intersectionality, which has become a massive, massive movement within critical race theory and really uh, becoming the key concept within all social justice movements today. So, critical race theory came out of these these individuals, and their idea then was so. Critical legal studies basically just said that America's systems are not just racist, but they are sexist and misogynist and, and homophobic and all of that. But then these critical race scholars came out of them saying, wait a minute, the bigger focus should be on race and not all these things. So that's the one difference between the critical race scholars and then the critical legal scholars. Then over time, since they were dealing more with race, they were saying, well, the reason why the legal system is racist is because the principles and culture is racist, which then leads to a sociological movement as well, naturally. Then you have um, other critical race uh, leaders coming up, including right now, people like Ibram X. Kendi, Robin D'Angelo. These are more sociologists. They're not uh, legal scholars, they're just sociologists. Um, you have also, thinking of um, other popular authors right now who would be considered such. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of like really universally well-known people. So for example, in Canada, another person would be uh, Desmond Cole, uh, would be a popular critical race uh, theorist. Um, we have our politicians who are critical race theorists, uh, really. I mean, you have AOC, who'd be a critical race theorist. You have Jagmeet Singh, who'd be a critical race theorist. So most leftists uh, today have been very much influenced by critical race theory. Yeah, I think that's super, super important to point out because it really gets to the ubiquity of critical race theory, that kind of religious presupposition that so many people have imbibed. And, you know, as you made mention, you know, it, it, there seems to be no true critical race theorist, according to those who are advocating for critical race theory. But also, you know, as this theory and the the kind of outshoots and the, the proponents of it has been more um, named more and more as people have awoken to the this ideology that has been long since taught in, in academia and long since uh, practiced by leftists in politics um, and culture. Uh, we now see the kind of obvious gaslighting of saying, no, 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 this stuff doesn't exist, right? When we look at what happened in Virginia and the pushback of, you know, just 
parents in schools pushing back against the praxis, the, the practice of critical race theory, what we see on CNN and a bunch of the mainstream media is this is a this is a, a conservative bogeyman. This is something that Trump created. This is something that isn't being taught in schools. Right. It's not present in uh, in K to 12 schools. Critical race theory is not being taught. What do you have to say to that? Because our conversation when we were talking about getting together was really built upon an article that you wrote on critical race theory in Canadian schools. And I think this will help highlight the fact that this this theory has embedded itself into the very fabric of our society. And then we can talk a little bit about that going forward. Yeah. Is critical race theory being taught in schools in Canada and the United States? Absolutely. Um, you know, you're right that there's a no true Scotsman uh, kind of fallacy um, in, in a lot of this. And again, there, there is some bit of truth in that. In that, as I said earlier, that critical race theory today looks a little bit different than what it did in the 1980s uh, when it first uh, started, uh, at least mainstreamly. It was released in the 70s, but it became more broad in the 80s. And, um, you know, so it is, as I mentioned before, it's before it was, it was very much strictly based on um, legal work, and now it's become more sociological. But as I said earlier, too, that critical legal critical race theory came out of critical legal studies. Critical legal studies came out of postmodernism and Marxism. And then you know, for example, that there is a difference between Western Marxism or neo-Marxism and original Marxism. The idea is ideas like this are always evolving. So this idea that this the modern version of critical race theory isn't real critical race theory because it's evolved is ridiculous. Nevertheless. Absolutely, it's being taught. Now, schools deny this, but they're teaching this. So I'll just read to you one, one email I actually got from someone. Um, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I think just to prove the point uh, about, you know, just the, the lies being said from these educators and the culture as a whole uh, when it comes to critical race theory. So I got a, an email from a parent in Alberta, um, and, and he had emailed his... Um, you know, in Calgary, he had emailed a Catholic school district, um, you know, in Calgary, and he asked them, do you guys teach critical race theory? I'll just read to you what they said, what they said in response to him, okay? Um, they said, our district does not currently teach critical race theory to our, to our kindergarten to grade 12 students, and it does not, and we do not expect it to be a topic of study within the revised provincial curriculum for kindergarten to grade 12 students. But then they followed up with this. As a district committed to fostering equitable and fair learning environments for all <laughs> students, we use several evidence-based strategies to achieve this goal. Now, here's a key word. There are tools developed from the academic research behind critical race theory that are useful in, in critically analyzing the evidence of education achievement gaps among students of diverse racial and cultural backgrounds. In other words, they're teaching critical race theory. <laughs> right? yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is critical race theory. That, that's critical race theory. I mean, they yeah. basically admit it by saying, well, yeah, we're borrowing from academic uh, um, tools and research from critical race theory. It's They say this because they know what they're doing is wrong. They know what they're doing is controversial. Well, they might think it's not wrong, but they know it's controversial. They know that a lot of parents would be against it. So they want to um, obscure the truth there. 
Um, but it's being taught. I uh, in the article that you mentioned, I I list um, especially in Ontario. Um, our curriculum is absolutely critical race theory. Where from kindergarten, they're they they are reading the anti-racist baby, right? A, a, a basically the the kids version the, the kids version of his uh, his book How to Be an Anti-Racist, which I think the better title is How to Be Racist. Uh, but you know, which but, you also have an article about. Yes, I do. Yeah, I did a review <laughs> yeah. on that book. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so they are reading these books. Uh, which says that babies, white babies or, you know, five-year-olds should learn to confess their racism. It's in this book and they're being, this is being read to them and, and they're being um, called to repeat those words. Um, they're also recommending white fragility to faculty. Um, they're also teaching some of um, um, the author um, of uh, white fragility, Robin D'Angelo's words to children as well. It's all within it. I mean, even, even in... Um, even in in, uh, in in our federal government, they have a new um, anti anti racism uh, outreach, which explicitly says they want Canadians to be to to acknowledge and to admit that um, systemic racism really is an issue in our Canada. Now, I find it fascinating. I know this is not really the point, but I find it fascinating when the government is trying to tell us that hey, guys, our systems are racist. If that's true, then why are you not changing what you claim? You're basically saying that you are racist, right? But anyway, um, it's absolutely in our schools, and it's, it's it's everywhere. It's in our culture and in our schools, and they continue to reject um, the evidence that it is being taught because they want to uh, continue doing so. They know that if they admit that they're teaching these things, it will encourage more parents, like it did in Virginia, to stand up against it. Yeah, totally. And this is part of the Mott and Bailey strategy. I know James Lindsay's talked about it. We've talked about it on the program. Basically, these proponents say uh, they're they're radical to the core and they have a radical agenda that they want to get to. Um, but any time and they're pushing to the Bailey, you know, expanding this worldview into culture. But anytime anybody names it or calls it out, they retreat to the Mott, which is their castle, uh, their tower of strong defense. And they say, no, no, no. What we just want is a society where black people and white people and people of all colors, races, religions, ethnicities are treated equal under the law and then it's just like no that's not what you're saying and we've got to know how to be able to understand this gaslighting program this mott and bailey strategy of when they're caught in their radicalism they're retreating back and we need to be more discerning be more aware of this game that's being played so we cannot get caught in that trap because i think naturally as christians we're very deferential. We're, we're very loving. We want to, you know, think well of people. We want to take people at their words. So when they're saying, no, 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 this is not really what we mean. We tend to want to say, okay, I get you. But in reality, this is exactly what they're doing. They're, they're about this program of being radical and anytime they're caught in radicalism, retreating back to the acceptable position, right? A lot of people think BLM is just the outgrowth of Martin Luther King Jr.'s view of race. And that's, and people like that. They like this society that 
every man, no matter their skin color, is judged equally under law. But realistically, that's not what BLM is. It's yeah. actually built on the old Malcolm X position, the old Black Panther, Black Power view of culture, which yeah. was roundly rejected in yeah. the 60s, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's really important. Now, you talked a lot about anti-racism. Really quickly, before we move on to this next question, can you define anti-racism? Because again, I think Christians were we're against racism, right? We're, yeah. we're anti-racism, yeah. um, biblically defined, mind yeah. you. But it, it gets to how this movement uses and repackages words to mean something totally different. So what does anti-racism mean from critical theorists? Yes. So anti-racism really means anti-equality. Um, so I, I will share a quote from Ibrahim Kendi in a second too, because he's again he's the one he's become the most popular anti-racist and he's become the most influential anti-racist. Uh, as I said before, his book "How to Be an Anti-Racist" is one of the top uh, top selling books, um, in, you know, in the world on this issue. But um, anti-racist uh, or anti-racism really means, uh, and his words from his book basically just says that anti-racism. Is when you eliminate racial um, inequality, and what he means by that is when you eliminate racial disparities in our in our society. So, I, I would, which creates other problems. So, to be very clear, again, anti-racism isn't dealing with a character. It's not dealing with an idea necessarily. It's dealing with outcomes. It's dealing with eliminating uh, so-called unequal outcomes in society, which then means you need to do certain things, commit certain things. Think about, have an idea that would produce so-called racial equity. So I'll just, I'll just read um, a, a direct quote from his book to explain to you the problem with this. He says, if racial discrimination is defined as treating, considering, or making a distinction in favor or against an individual based on that person's race, then racial discrimination is not inherently racist. Right? So again, he's saying... If you believe racism is, is, is a traditional sense, that it's basically showing racial bias towards someone, then it is not inherently racist. You're wrong. However, again, continuing from his exact words, the defining question is whether the discrimination is creating equity or inequity. If, if it's creating equity, then it is anti-racist. If it's creating inequity then it is racist. What that means in context, if you are racist against white people, but it leads to so-called equity or equality of outcome, then it's not racist. It's not wrong. But if you are racist against black people, and it leads to racial inequity or racial disparities, then it's wrong. So this so-called view of anti-racism really means racism against white people that leads to racial equity in their mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that is literally what he goes on to say, right? It, it, inequity or racism in the present is needed to uh, cover up or redeem inequity and racism in the past. So yeah. we have to treat people racist yeah. we have to be racist to other people now to create equitable outcomes and, exactly. and 
when we're talking about equity, that's another important one to define for us. Can you quickly talk about equity? Because equity is kind of a word that's changed in meaning. And again, it's been filled with a lot of um, kind of Marxist ideology. And when they talk about equity, what are they talking about, Sam? Yeah, so equity used to be a uh, synonymous with the term uh, equality. Now it means something entirely different. Now it means instead of equal opportunity, it means equal outcome. Uh, so equity means that that all ethnic or so-called racial groups should have the exact same outcome in society, which you can only, of course, produce by discriminating against other kinds of people. And I mean, um, as I said before, in his, in his book, he actually does say that past discrimination means then that you should have future or present discrimination against white people. So equity really just means equality of outcome. And then you have to bring some people lower in order to have everybody being on on the same equal footing, which, of course, leads to socialism and communism. As we've mentioned, that they are a Marxist group. They believe that all people should have the same outcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, that's that's going to lead me to where I want to go now is I want to talk about critical praxis. And by that, I mean the practicing of these basic philosophical presuppositions. So not necessarily the teaching of the theory, but the actual application of these presuppositions in, 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 in our culture. Um, And that's something that I'm primarily as a guy who's worried about worldviews and the presuppositions that lie underneath them. I'm always thinking of what is kind of underneath what people are saying, what people are doing. And I see maybe the biggest problem in our culture is that people have unwittingly through osmosis imbibed this worldview without ever actually knowing what they're talking about. And it's based off of a fertile, fertile fallacy that, um, you know, that there has been inequity in the past. There has been discrimination in the past, um, based off of like ontological inherent qualities of people. Therefore, you know, um, we're kind of sensitive to understanding that that was a reality, but then they use that as the means to, you know, jam pack their worldview into society without actually teaching what they're saying and what they're meaning. And they change these words. So you made mention that in politics, our politicians in Canada are critical race theorists. Now it's not because they're writing books on critical race theory, but it's because they're actually putting into law Uh, things that are that presuppose the truth of critical analysis. Yeah. So maybe you can talk a little bit about less of the theory and just where, as Canadians, we see critical race theory being practiced. Yeah. So uh, a very relevant and simple example would be on the the vaccine, for example. So I think it was in Hamilton um, earlier this year where Hamilton said that if you were a black person they would um, give you first access to the vaccine strictly based on your skin color because, and this is the, re- the reasoning was for equity because there was, uh, there was a disparity of, of black people uh, as it has been in the U S who were, um, who were getting more, who were getting um, uh, the virus 
and dying from that than than other the white people. So not so much more, but based on percentage, you had a disproportionate number of black people getting sick or dying from that uh, from um, from COVID. Therefore, they said for equity to create in their mind to create equal outcomes, let's give black people first um, you know first access to getting the vaccine. Well, that's racist, right? That, that's just what it is. So it's a very practical example of, the, of that kind of racism. You also have the federal government earlier this year um, um, committing to giving black uh, business business owners, um, I'm forgetting, I think it was $40 million, I'm, I'm forgetting exactly what the number was, but giving black uh, re- uh, business owners $40 million or at least several millions of dollars um, strictly because they were black people who they claim to be oppressed or to lack uh, privilege in our society. So those would be two of the immediate examples that comes to mind on this. Um, You also have, of course, as I mentioned earlier, the um, anti-racist project from the federal government, uh, which is, again, to basically um, lecture, uh, it says lecture Canadians um, about uh, admitting and acknowledging uh, white privilege or systemic racism in our culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I can think of one that goes way back to our parents' generation. Affirmative action. Affirmative uh, action yeah. is really built on this idea that present discrimination against the subject subsection of the population is necessi- necessary to que- create equitable outcomes. So yeah. we need to have 50% of women on our board, 50% of our, or, or a proportionate amount of our board needs to be made up of uh, people with black skin, Chinese skin, whatever. Yeah. In all manners, it is destroying this idea that we're all equal before an objective standard. And yeah. um, it really is fighting against this idea of meritocracy or us earning based off of what we do, regardless of the color of our skin, um, these positions of influence or or power or anything like that. So it even goes back that far, right? Exactly. Because as you made mention, these ideas aren't new. They're ideas that have been circulating since the late 19th century. And mm-hmm. the idea of, you know, this kind of Western Marxist analysis of culture has been embedded in politics for almost a century now. And now we're at the point where we're really seeing the fruit of this rotten root yeah. bear yeah bear greatly and bear poison fruit in our society. But that is just one instance that we can point to way back when, um, when it comes to this critical race theory being practiced in our society and even, even land acknowledgements, which is a new religious ritual before I I got jet season tickets. I go to a jets game. You have to sit there before they do the national anthem. You have to be told that we're sitting on treaty one land. Now, part of the treaties, if you read them is they gave up their right to own that land. So I don't know why we're acknowledging it, especially since they, get the goodies apparently that um, come from these treaties. But the idea is smuggling in this anti-colonialism, anti-Western worldview, and it's making it a part of the everyday practice of Canadians. So this is stuff we all have to wake up to. Exactly. And even something as simple as a land acknowledgement, some will just say, well, yeah, just acknowledging that the lands originally belong to the indigenous uh, population. Well, not exactly. The main point there is to say, as you suggested, that, well, we have to acknowledge this because they were cheated out of this land 
from the white people. So it's to remind Canadians that you live in a culture and in a nation where it was built by white supremacists for white people. And that you should always recognize that the pe that our nation is, is built on, a, supposedly their claim is based on cheaters and oppressors. That is why they do this. Because they always want to remind us that we are, um, you know, that the non-indigenous people are privileged in society built uh, by suprem white supremacists. Yeah, everything that we have is the 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 fruit of the poisonous tree, right? We stole it uh, from other people, so everything that you have, you can't have a claim to because you're essentially the descendants of thieves. Um, yeah. That is ignorant of the history of our land, ignorant of the many different tribes across uh, North America who were primarily nomadic, and it paints with a disgusting broad brush. But <laughs> that that is uh, just an example of how. In, in in integrating this theory into society, we end up actually um, absolutizing race and bringing race consciousness to absolutely every area of life. And it's not creating a less racist society. It's creating a more racist society. Um, and we need to be aware of that. Now, the first time I had you on, Sam, it was way back when to talk about the Brett Kavanaugh situation and the trial and everything that went into his appointment uh, through the Supreme Court and the, the crazy nonsense of that. It feels like we've it's been like 14, 15, 20 years since we <laughs> yeah. talked about that. Yeah. Uh, things are moving so fast. But I, I do want to now turn to a recent trial that a lot of people are talking about because it's made a lot of news. And I think it's perfectly indicative of how CRT is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's embedded in our culture and it really changes and distorts the conversations we have. And I'm specifically talking about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Now, a lot of people on my Facebook friends of mine through work and music and all that stuff were shocked to discover that Kyle Rittenhouse could, a white supremacist, evil man who went to kill black people at a BLM riot, could have been found not guilty. But that's what I want you to jump into, Sam, because even that narrative is built off of critical race theory lies. So, Yep. Maybe give your perspective on the Kyle Rittenhouse situation. I know you've written about it. You've talked about it and how CRT and the practice of it really colors this whole situation. Yes, this is a, a people still, even conservatives are missing the real point here. And I mentioned in the article, they've mentioned that, well, the reason why they are attacking us and conservatives are saying the reason why that. Kyle Rittenhouse has become an enemy of the left is because he's a white person. Uh, not exactly. That's part of it, but it's not the real issue here. So, um, you know, for those who may not know, simple story is, and I've watched the entire video. I've watched every single thing I possibly could on it. I knew the man was was not guilty and he was innocent. Um, he was clearly acting in self-defense. Um, his 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 you know, attackers were all white and they were trying to either injure him or kill him. For example, I'm forgetting his last name, but Gage, K something, I, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, so um, he was on, uh, you know, he was testifying against him, and even he admitted that, well, the, the only reason why 
Kyle Rittenhouse shot at him is because he had pointed his own pistol at him. Now, I watched the video. He actually was about to shoot Kyle Rittenhouse in the head before Kyle Rittenhouse shot him in the arm. Now, Kyle Rittenhouse could have done... Some other, some other guys would have done far worse than shooting him in the arm when someone's trying to shoot, shoot you in the head. Um, nevertheless, so the real issue here with this case is not about white privilege, not even close. I say it's a matter of black privilege and leftist privilege. So this is because the entire Kenosha uh, issue, this, the whole saga started because a black man named, um, oh man, I'm forgetting his name right now, named Jacob Blake, yes, yes. A black man named Jacob Blake was, um, he, so he had a restraining order against him from his ex-girlfriend because apparently he was physically and sexually abusing his ex-girlfriend. So she had this restraining order against him and then he violates that. And then she calls, by the way, she is a black woman as well. She calls the cops for them to come protect her from him. When they come to protect her from him, he's, he's, he is, he's not complying he is fighting them, and then he he um, he runs away from them, trying to get, uh, which he later admits to, a knife from his car, and that's a very serious you know serious issue for the cops. So they shoot him uh, in the back, and that makes him paralyzed. Immediately, our whole culture, uh, the whole world, claims that this is an example of racist police brutality, and these cops need to be kept uh, kept accountable which leads to all these riots. Well, the only reason why Kyle Rittenhouse was considered, sorry, Kyle Rittenhouse, um, Jacob Blake was considered a victim of brutality is because he's black. No doubt about it. The evidence, everything, um, um, affirmed the cops' uh, case against Jacob Blake. Now, as I said before, the people, so that's, that's, that's what I mean by black privilege, right? It's because of his skin color. Now, about the, <laughs> no, no, yeah. They would say, well, why would you, they would be saying, well, well, you're an abusive, you're abusing your, your girlfriend. Um, I know you would never do that, right? But if that were you, that, that's what they would they'd be saying. And then they would say, well, why would you, not only, you know, not only would you fight the cops when they're trying to arrest you, but you would go try to get a knife, right? When they're telling, it's, it's, yeah, it's just ridiculous. Anyway, so, and then the leftist privilege there is this. The, his attackers, including the two individuals who were killed, were even worse than Jacob Blake. I mean, um, uh, you know, one of one of them was a serial pedophile, a serial sexual uh, uh, assaulter of minors, right? And then the other one was also um, uh, apparently uh, just has a long criminal history of beating up women as well, including his ex girlfriend. These are all white leftists who were supporting Black Lives Matter and Ante and I suppose Antifa at the riots. So they attack Kyle Rittenhouse and he defends himself by killing them. Uh, because they were threatening his life. The other, the third person who was injured but not uh, not killed, as I mentioned, was this Gage Proskowitz person, um, and and he was also again a white person. The point is this: they are being defended, though they, they they're being called victims, though they were white people, white leftists who were attempting to kill or harm this um, white man named, although in some ways he was a boy back then, he was 17 years old, uh, Kyle uh, Rittenhouse. The point is this. It's not that he is a, a, a white person, Kyle Rittenhouse, that the left hates him. It's because he's a white conservative. That's the problem here. He is a victim of privilege himself. 
He doesn't have black privilege. He doesn't have leftist privilege. And that's why he was almost sentenced to life in prison. But more than that, the real reason why they hate him as a white conservative is because he is a white conservative who is opposing Black Lives Matter. Now, I, hear, I heard um, a preview of an interview that, he, he's, that he's done with um, Tucker Carlson where he says that he actually supports the Black Lives Matter movement. Nevertheless, because he went there to defend Kenosha, to defend a friend's business from being damaged from the riots, because he was apparently cleaning up the city after the, after the, after the rioters, since he was not supporting that riot, he is seen as an enemy. So because he also um, killed in self-defense white uh, rioters who were there in support of Black Lives Matter or, so or supposedly Jacob Blake, those people, his attackers, are seen as um, allies of black people. And since he killed these allies, he's seen as an enemy of black people. So even though there were no black people involved in that case, in their mind, the way they frame it, these leftists, is that, well, he was there trying to kill black people, even though that's not the case at all. But again, the real issue here is he was a person who, Kyle uh, House is a person who is not against America's institutions. Look, um, both our, our, well, the NDP leader here, Jagmeet Singh, and his counterparts in the U.S., AOC, both said, well, the reason why this is a, uh, an, an unjust verdict from the jury in their mind is that, well, America's institution or institutions, including all of Western institutions in their mind, is built, for, is built by white supremacists for white people. So what's really going on here is they want to destroy America's legal system. They want to destroy the West legal system. Kyle Rittenhouse is simply an easy way to, to, get, that, um, to get that pushed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've heard a lot of people say if he was not white, he would have been found guilty. If this is a black man in the exact same situation, someone with the same melanin count as you, Sam, mm -hmm. uh, he would have been found guilty. But the, the I, I mean, God is in, in irony, like he, he, I think he's, he loves comedy. He loves to highlight the ridiculousness of sin and the destructive nature of evil ideologies. The same week, um, a guy named Andrew AJ coffee, the fourth was found not guilty in Florida, who is a black man in almost an identical situation of self-defense that Kyle Rittenhouse found himself in. So that's not true. It's fundamentally yeah. not true, yeah. but it really highlights your point. This is not necessarily about race. It's about power. It's about bringing in a Marxist revolution, a right. Marxist cultural revolution. And it's about doing, you know, um, it's about toppling the entire system that you're talking about. And we can't lose sight of the ball in that sense. And what you're seeing nowadays is even reminiscent. You can go all the way back to the French Revolution, how anybody who would be op opposing the power of the revolutionaries would just be fundamentally not considered a citizen yeah. and and an enemy of the state. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing. And that's what you're trying to highlight. It's not necessarily that he's white. It's yeah. that he's an enemy of the revolution yeah. or he doesn't fit into our revolutionary view of the world. Yeah. Why can we discriminate against 
Asian people because they're outstripping us in all the (laughs) – when it comes to merit, when it comes to earning things, when it comes to education, they're not proving our point. So we can discriminate against – the hard work of Asian people when it comes to schooling who yeah. are, you know, very successful, more successful yeah. than anybody. Yeah. Um, so that's what we have to keep our eyes on. What is being, what is happening right now is a cultural revolution mm-hmm. that is trying to be run on us. And it's re- realistically something that's not new. It's been, it's been in the playbook since the start of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really been ramping up, you know, since the sixties, but it kind of had a, with Reagan coming in, in the eighties, it kind of got stalled, but now we're seeing this ramp up again, uh, in our culture. And Barack Obama was a perfect example. He filled his entire administration with those people who were taught at the feet of critical race theories. Van Jones, he's a CNN commentator. He's literally a communist. He had to leave the the Obama White House because he was a communist. Um, Jeremiah Wright, all these guys that Obama sat under, they're black liberation theologians. They're which is linked to Marxism, you know, these, his entire administration and now Obama's administration is filled with people who learn critical race theory and they're applying it. And they're in quite often when we look at BLM, when we look at the LGBT community community and stuff, they're applying the same Marxist relativistic standards of community justice that was taught in Saul Alinsky's uh, rule for rules for radicals. This is a program that's been run for a long time and we need to wake up to it, name it and fight back against it. And maybe Sam, you can talk a little bit. We can end this on a positive note about how the work of, of men like you, of, of Vody Bauckham, of, um, you know, James Lindsay of Michael O'Fallon and sovereign nations of so many people spending the hard work, to name this theory and this idea and its origins has really led to some positive fruit in the United States, but how we as Canadians need to wake up and push back against it, just like our our brothers and sisters to the South. Uh, For a lot of us. And, you know, the, the most encouraging thing I've seen so far in this entire issue is seeing in Virginia, which I think you mentioned earlier, average... Mothers. It was mothers. It was, I mean, it was, of course, different groups of people, but primarily average mothers who have been, who've been fighting across America, uh, critical race theory in schools. They know it. They know what's being taught. They, they, they see the critical, especially now that they've been, many of them were home, um, to see because, you know, the kids were not in school. In many ways, it was a blessing in disguise, right? That, um, these schools who were essentially, uh, being very lazy and harming the children by not um, allowing them into you know in school, that parents got to see what was really happening with the with the curriculum, and they saw that their kids are being taught that they are they are they are they're oppressors, they're privileged just because of their skin color and all of that. So anyway, they ended up starting to really become involved with the school board meetings and letting their voice be heard against critical race theory, and then in the uh, election a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a bit more than that, they were able to um, give 
the Republicans a very good a very good uh, win, but not because Republicans are so great. That's not the point. The point is is that the Republican nominee there was very much against critical race theory, and the Democratic nominee uh, was very much in huge support of critical race theory. The point here is this: these are just average people who were fed up, and they said no, for the sake of their kids, they're going to stand up against critical race theory. The the federal government essentially in the U.S. Call these people, or the FBI called these people domestic terrorists. They were called racist, they were called all these things, but they said no. They're not afraid of being canceled by certain people. They just want to protect their children. Here in Canada, I've oftentimes said this, critical race theory is just as prevalent, if not more prevalent, than it is here, than it is in America. The problem is, the problem is that we don't have anything close to the pushback that the Americans have against critical race theory. So, what we need to do is to not look to our politicians and supposed cultural leaders to stand up against this stuff. We just need the average person, one person, to call their schools to say, hey, what are you teaching my kids? To hold them accountable, right? And to be, uh, to be if you're a Christian, to be praying on this issue and to be doing whatever you can in your local area to stand up against critical race theory. Because I've seen myself, by doing my talk, many people starting to become aware of this and then in their own areas uh, making change. Yeah. Yeah, man. And I'm, I'm certainly encouraged by that. Also shame on us men too, for allowing, you know, women to take up the fight, to have more courage than, than us in this area. We have to like, now is the time to fight friends. Now it's the time to push back on this because if we don't stop this, you know, especially in Canada, we might not be able to fight. We're, our government's literally talking about censoring the internet. <laughs> that, that's, that's the reality of where we're at right now. And of course, they would censor such a racist talk that, that you and I have had today, suggesting that the, the anti-racism program of Ibram X. Kendi is, is totally racist, you know? <laughs> Those are the sort of things that are, are coming down the pike in Christ, it, 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 as Christians in Canada. We're looking at, at B, Bill C-6, or what was formerly called Bill C-6, which would ban basically our ability to do Christian counseling, something that I'm very passionate about currently doing ACBC uh, Christ, biblical counseling. And I could not, as a biblical counselor, counsel people to glorify God when it comes to matter of sexuality without ending up getting fined or ending up in jail. That's the reality of what's coming down in our nation now. So we need to fight back. We need to push back. We need to organize as Canadian citizens and push back against these ungodly ideologies. And, and, you know, here's an example of, of just how ingrained um, socialism and these ideas of critical theory and stuff are in our culture. Even the idea of modern public schools are the greatest proponents of them were socialists and Marxists. We're looking at Horace Mann and John Dewey in the United States and, and how they've been so in influential on just pushing the idea of public education as we know it today. So we shouldn't be surprised when that rotten fruit or rotten root leads to this rotten fruit. So I'm so thankful, uh, Sam, that you have come on had this discussion that you are doing a yeoman's work in this area that you're one of very few voices in Canada 
really pushing back against this. And I just love how God has blessed your ministry, has used it. So you've been able to have conversations, not just in Canada, but around the world. So maybe before we close up, you could give people a little bit of an idea of how they can see where you're, uh, where you're posting, how they can get a hold of the stuff that you've done in the past so they, they can come to know and beware of these ideologies so then we can know how to fight back against them. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I've enjoyed chatting with you, man, as, uh, yeah. as always. Um, but yeah, they can find me on slowtoright.com, uh, which is slow to write exactly as uh, you hear it. Um, on, um, yeah, that's, that's where I blog weekly. Uh, sometimes more than uh, once a week. Um, you can also find me on social media uh, across all social media platforms as uh, slow to write again, same spelling. And then um, I am also on Patreon um, and PayPal. If people choose to uh, want to support me, they can support me there as well. Also, again, same name, slow to write. Uh, I'm also working on a curriculum on critical race theory to help uh, parents and children understand these issues very complex issues, but in a very simplified form. Uh, that's my goal. So I'm working on that, and uh, hopefully um, by early next year, it should be available. So maybe around um, before the spring, it should be available. Awesome, man. That sounds like a wonderful project. And definitely go over to Sam's Patreon or his PayPal account, Slow to Write, so you can give to help that that uh, curriculum finish, ha- help him produce that, because... I feel like that is the exact thing that we need to push back against the curriculums that are being taught throughout our culture that are shot through with critical race theory. Thank you, brother, so much for for joining us. Uh, God bless your work, and uh, hopefully we'll have to have you on sooner rather than later to discuss the myriad of topics that I'm sure we could (laughs) discuss. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. God bless. Do you love listening to The Great Exchange? You can subscribe to our podcast on any one of these podcast platforms, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts, and have two engaging episodes delivered to your mobile device each week. Our midweek message covers a myriad of topics and teaches us to look at them all through gospel glasses. And our Scripture Saturday episode is just that, an opportunity to study the Bible one passage of Scripture at a time. Miss an episode? Visit our website, thegreatexchange.ca, and you will find the complete back catalog of our episodes. And don't be shy. We love to hear from you, our listeners. Send us a message on Facebook or Instagram, or if you're not social media savvy, send us an email to thegreatexchangepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all for joining in our ministry as we help you look at the world through gospel glasses. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We really hope you enjoyed this content with our brother, Samuel Say. It was such a wonderful opportunity to get to talk to him about such important issues, right? During the conversation, we were talking about the ubiquity of CRT that is shot through our society, and that as Christians, we must wake up to that fact. So definitely you're going to want to go over to slowtowrite.com. That's slow to write. Link is down there. .com to check out more of what Sam says got going on. We really hope you enjoyed the discussion. You can check out what we have going on at thegreatexchange.ca and this is our first 
of hopefully many more YouTube videos. So we want you to go over to our website, check out everything we got going on. We got new shirts over there on our website and you can order them now and you can check out everything we got going on there at our shop. Please be sure to follow us on any of your favorite podcast catchers. You can subscribe, rate, and review over there. And we want to encourage you as well to hit that bell, hit the notification, and subscribe buttons. That way you can stay tuned for new and important episodes that we're going to bring you, our faithful listeners, in the future. So thank you so much for tuning in. We really enjoyed bringing this con- content and this episode. And please be sure to go over to thegreatexchange.ca to check out more from us. But that brings us to the end of the program. And as we say at the end of every single program, it is finished.